Jesus says, if you'll really get up out of your pig pen of rebellion and you'll start heading back to the Father, he will run to meet you because he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's part of who he is. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Among the most important questions in life is this, how is sinful man made right with a holy God? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his eight-part series in Exodus 33 and 34 with part six of God's Sermon on His Name. During God's interaction with Moses, he describes two groups of people that live in this world. The first are those who love God, described as guilty ones having repented of their sins and having sought God's forgiveness. They are true believers. The second group consists of those who are guilty but remain unrepentant, marked by a refusal to turn from their sins and plead for God's grace and forgiveness. They are unbelievers. Well, there you have it, a binary choice and a sobering reality. In today's message, Tom will challenge you, in light of the scripture, to examine yourself carefully. Which of the two groups are you in, friend? Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Now, our New American Standard Bible is a fabulous translation from the original language. It's the best we can get in English, the closest to the original text. If you don't know Greek and Hebrew, the New American Standard is the closest we can get in English to a literal translation of what's there. However, on this occasion, I feel like this may be the most unfortunate translation in the entire New American Standard. The Hebrew word that's translated loving kindness is the word chesed, H-E-S-E-D, Hesed. It occurs more than 250 times in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's used of the relationship between people, but most often it's used of the relationship that God has with His people. And it contains two completely equal ideas. You have to get both sides of this word. First of all, this word hesed speaks of a profound love that is found in the deepest of relationships. Secondly, it refers to tenacity, a tenacious, stubborn commitment to love the person in that relationship. Both of those concepts are there. So it has the idea of love on the one hand and loyalty on the other. That's why some translations render it steadfast love. In fact, if you're around countryside any time at all, you'll notice that every time except this morning when I was reading this passage before I explained it, I always read the word loving kindness as steadfast love because that's what it means. It's God's chesed. It's his steadfast love. Other translations render it unfailing love. In the end, God's chesed is a long-term unfailing loyalty by one member of a covenant relationship toward another. Davis writes, in the context of Exodus 34, Israel had absolutely no claim on Yahweh's chesed because they had broken the covenant in the golden calf worship. 
If Israel receives chesed, it will only be because it flows from Yahweh's heart. Because of who he is, he is rich in chesed. Hence, chesed really passes over into grace, end quote. It is his steadfast, tenacious, stubborn love. God's chesed is often described, as it is here in chapter 34, as abounding or great. But I think my favorite word picture of God's, the greatness of God's chesed occurs in Psalm 36, verse 5, where the psalmist writes, your steadfast love, O Lord, your chesed extends to the heavens. You want to know how great this quality is in God? After the service is over, I, I, have, I give you this assignment. Walk outside and look up as far as your eyes will let you see into the atmosphere above this earth. That's how great God's chesed is. It's like an ocean in which we live. God's chesed is also described as precious in Psalm 36, 7, good in Psalm 69, 16. And here's an interesting one. In Psalm 63, 3, God's chesed, his steadfast love is said to be better than life. Do you believe that? You believe that God's steadfast love to you is better than life itself? It is. Why? Because by God's steadfast love, we are preserved. Psalm 40, verse 11, your steadfast love will preserve me continually. By God's steadfast love, we are comforted. Psalm 119.76, may your steadfast love comfort me according to your word to your servant. It is through God's steadfast love that we find forgiveness. Psalm 51.1, be gracious to me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. And here's a favorite of mine, Psalm 86, 5. You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Don't you love that? You, you don't just forgive. You don't just sort of, okay, I guess I'll forgive you. God, you are eager to forgive. You are ready to forgive, and that's because you are abounding it goes on to say, in steadfast love to all who call upon you. It's through God's steadfast love we receive compassion. Isaiah 54, 8, in an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting steadfast love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord God, your Redeemer. It's through God's steadfast love that we are heard by God. Psalm 119 Verse 149, hear my voice according to your chesed. It's by God's chesed that we have hope and salvation. Psalm 130, verse 7, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is abundant redemption. Listen, there is one unchanging reality in our ever-changing world. It is God's chesed, his steadfast love. Again and again, Scripture says that it is everlasting. It's forever. It always endures. I love the way David puts it in Psalm 23, verse 6, where he says, Surely, certainly, your 
goodness and your steadfast love will follow me. Now, that word follow doesn't mean like a mile behind me. It's a word that means, it describes what a predator does when it chases down its prey. Here, of course, it's used in a positive sense. God, surely your steadfast love will hunt me down all the days of my life, and then I will dwell in your house forever. In fact, God's steadfast love for us, are you ready for this? It really never had a beginning, and it never has an end. Look at Psalm 103. Again, this is David's commentary on the self-revelation of God we're looking at. And in Psalm 103, verse 15, notice how he describes this truth in God. He says, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind is passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. He's talking about spring wildflowers. If you lived in California, you understand this. You know, it rains and boom, up pops the grass and the flowers. They're beautiful. And then comes the Santa Ana's and it's gone. We're blue bonnets, folks. That's what he's saying. We're like blue bonnets. We're here today, gone tomorrow. But, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Do you see the word picture? God's love for us began in eternity past. It spans our brief lives here, and it reaches into eternity future. In fact, what, what he really says when he says it's from everlasting to everlasting, he says, think for a moment about this. Have you ever sat and tried to contemplate eternity? I mean, just try to think your way back into eternity past and go as far as your mind will take you. And then turn around and take your mind and go as far as you can into eternity future and imagine how far out you can go. David says, from vanishing point in the past to vanishing point in the future, there is always God's steadfast love. It's set upon you. In Exodus 34, go back there with me, God adds to this this word grouping, not only steadfast love, but I am abounding in steadfast love and truth. In this context, truth speaks of God's faithfulness to His promises. You see, when you sin, God wants you, Christian, to remind yourself that every promise that God has made to you will still ultimately be completely fulfilled. Nothing can prevent you from receiving the eternal blessings that He has reserved for all of those who trust in His Son, not even your sin. You put these two words together, and we learn that God's love is unchanging and steadfast, and God's promises are sure and certain, and He abounds in this reality. More than enough. He's never going to run out, and your sin is not going to exhaust it. He is good in His attributes, who He is. But secondly, I want you to notice that He is good in His actions what he does. He is good in his actions, what he does. Notice verse 7. Who keeps steadfast love for thousands, 
who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations. Now, did you notice in verse 7 there are two groups? Very important you understand these two groups. First of all, there are thousands to whom God shows steadfast love and forgives their sin. And then the second group is the guilty whom he will not leave unpunished, but visits their iniquity on the third and fourth generation. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying that the first group are without guilt. They are also guilty, but God says, I will forgive their iniquity, transgression, and sin. So, who are these two groups? And how does God respond to each of them? And how in the world do you become a part of one of these two groups? Well, the context can help us. Go back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, this is just two months before, and as God gives the Ten Commandments, as He speaks them aloud from Mount Sinai, in the second commandment, verse 4, He says, you shall not make for yourself an idol. And then He says in verse 5, and don't worship that idol or serve that idol, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Here it is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations, but notice the addition, of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, and again notice the addition, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now keep that in mind and turn over to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here is the, the recounting of the law 40 years later as they're about to enter the land of promise. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Moses writes this, "'Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and His steadfast love to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments.'" There's the first group. Here's the second group, verse 10 but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I'm commanding you today to do them. So, back in Exodus 34, there are these two groups then. Let's define them. Now that we have those, that picture, let me give you a definition, and I'm going I'm to put it up on the screen so you can see it. I want you to read it with me, not out loud, but in your mind, in your heart. Group number one are those who love me, God says. Who are those who love him? Well, you put those passages we just read together, and this is where you land. They are the guilty who believe in Yahweh as their God, trust solely in His grace, repent of their sins and seek His forgiveness, and having found forgiveness, love God and show their repentance and love by obeying His Word. It's what we just saw in those passages. The second group are those who hate me. Who are those who hate God? You know, nobody says, oh, well, very few people anyway would say, I hate God. But who are they? Here God defines them. They are the guilty who remain unrepentant and demonstrate their hatred for God by continual disobedience and a refusal to turn from their sins and plead for His grace and forgiveness. 
So my question for you this morning is which of those two groups are you in? Did you notice, by the way, there's no like third group? You can't raise your hand and go, look, I don't belong in either of those. Is there a third choice? There's no third choice. God doesn't give you a third choice. That's it. You, in the mind of God, fit into one of those groups. So the question is, which? Because God acts very differently toward these two groups. Look again at Exodus 34. Consider his actions toward those who love him. Verse 7. First of all, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. The word keeps is a verb of action. So not only does does he have steadfast love, but he keeps it. That is, he does something about it. He, He acts on it. There's a stream of benefits that flow out from his steadfast love. That's recorded even if you read Psalm 103. David talks about all the benefits that are ours because of this relationship we have with God. And he says he keeps steadfast love for thousands. Now, obviously, on the one hand, that means for lots of people, right? But it means more than that because in the parallel passages we just saw, he says he keeps steadfast love to the thousandth, what? Generation. Think about this for a moment. You are still benefiting from God's steadfast love to Abraham. In Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed, spiritually blessed, through the the one who will come from your line, Messiah. And here you are. You are, as Galatians 3 says, you are a son or daughter of Abraham if you have believed as he believed in the gospel that was preached to him. God has shown his steadfast love to Abraham to the thousandth generation. A second action toward those who love him, verse 7, is that he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. The word forgives means he no longer holds our sin against us. He holds us guiltless as if we had not committed those sins. In fact, look down in verse 9. The synonym is pardon. He pardons our sin. Or in the words of Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God takes our sin and the guilt that comes from that sin, the justice we deserve, and he separates it from us as far as east is from west. They never meet. And our guilt never meets with us again. Notice the three words, iniquity, transgression, and sin, those are synonyms, but, but each of them has its own nuance describing a sin in a particular way. Iniquity describes sin as intentionally turning away from God and His path. Twisting your way off of His path is the idea. And having guilt because of that. Transgression sees sin as rebellion, rebellion against your rightful king and his laws. And sin is the most general word. It's failing to meet the divine standard. Taken together, these three words include every possible sin you have or ever will commit. Beloved, the point is there is no sin that God will not forgive if you are willing to repent. He'll pardon it. He'll take it 
and separate it from you as far as the east is from the west. If you're not a Christian, do you understand? If you're here this morning and you know that you're not a Christian, or perhaps you thought you were, you made some prayer or profession when you were younger, but frankly, your life is not marked by obedience to Jesus Christ. You don't love Jesus Christ. You're not following Him. You're not living in His way. If you're like that this morning, do you understand that what we've just studied is how God will respond to you if you will turn to Him in repentance and faith in His Son? And if you doubt that, this afternoon, I, got, I have an assignment for you. I want you to take your Bible this afternoon, and I want you to read Luke 15. Read the story Jesus tells about the prodigal son, because in that story, the father is God the father, and the prodigal who takes every good thing the father has given him and squanders it in all kinds of loose living and finds himself in a desperate situation, that's you, and that's me. And if you wondered how God would respond if you ever really turned back to him, read the story. Because Jesus says, if you'll really get up out of your pig pen of rebellion and you'll start heading back to the Father, he will run to meet you because he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's part of who he is. Christian, this is also how God responds to you when you sin and when you return to him in repentance. And if you doubt that, then you reread Psalm 51 this afternoon. You read how these concepts permeate David's prayer as he seeks the forgiveness of God in light of his sin. This is who our God is. When you sin, don't misunderstand, God is still holy, and he will not compromise his holiness for you. He doesn't take your sin lightly, and neither should you. He is still great. He is still worthy of your respect. He is not one to be trifled with, but thank God he is also good. He is compassionate and gracious, long of nose, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he will keep his steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love him, and he will forgive your iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is our God. Look again at Exodus 34. The Lord passed by, verse 6, in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who keeps steadfast love for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This is our God. Next week, Lord willing, we'll finish God's self-revelation here and we'll look at the great enigma of the Old Testament. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of his series, God's Sermon on His Name. Tom will have part seven for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, Tom, before we end our time today, would you share a closing thought with us? You know, friend, my encouragement to you is to do what the saints have always done. If you have repented and believed in Christ, then you need to remember who God is, that He's holy and doesn't take our sin lightly, that He deserves our greatest respect and honor, and He's worthy of our praise. At the same time, 
He's good in who he is and in what he does. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Such goodness extends to the thousandth generation for those who love him. And he will graciously pardon and forgive our iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Believer, this is our God. This is his glory. This is his goodness. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's the wordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Mm-hmm.